0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: Welcome to Voices Behind the Game. I'm Jeremy Roberts. And I'm excited for you to hear this episode. It's a unique one with Andy Larson from the Salt Lake Tribune. Andy covers the Utah Jazz for the Salt Lake Trib. And he does so in a very unique way, combining analytics and a narrative that you don't get to see you typically in a reporter. You usually see heavy to one side or the other. But Andy is mastering that craft and it's fun to hear how he got there. He's a native of Utah, a math major, and he fell in love with the sports and the combining of math and where those two uniquely intersect. So I know you'll find it very interesting to hear about Andy's approach and also his unique challenge that he has right now while the NBA is not functioning due to the COVID pandemic. Andy's new job is actually covering the COVID pandemic in only the unique way that he can, again, combining narrative, information, and math. So pull up a chair and turn up your radio and enjoy a really fascinating episode with Andy Larson from the Salt Lake Tribune on Voices Behind the Game. So, um, I, I got a chance just a little bit to read a little bit about you. So, you're actually from Utah?
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, born and raised here, went to college here, went to school here, the whole thing.
1: Okay. Where uh, Where did you where did you go to high school?
2: So, I went to high school at uh, Waterford, which is this private school up in Sandy. Yeah. Um, I actually live right by
0: Waterford. Yeah, we're yeah. very close <laughs> to it, both yeah, of us. You know. Yeah, I almost throw a
1: stone and hit it. Yep
2: uh cool so yeah and i you know i I actually lived in riverton and kind of made a 20 minute commute every day to school but um so that was great and then i went to westminster after that to continue the uh private school brick theme you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) and and you just wanted to stay as close to 13th east as possible right exactly (laughs) you know if
2: i could just only go to school along that line i mean if you guys are from there, you maybe know like Peruvian Park Elementary.
1: Oh, I you bet. Well, elementary, you know, like, we, yeah, we grew up like two minutes. From, my house yeah. is
0: uh, within walking distance of, and under five minutes, easy, of Peruvian okay. Park.
2: So then, yeah, that's that really has been my whole life, and now I live on like nineties. So it's, okay. it's all it's <laughs> one little corridor.
0: Back, Good for you. Back Good. in
1: the old days, uh, and I'm dating myself. That would be the number thirty-three white city bus. That would go down 13th East and then cut over to uh, 7th East. Yeah. So, uh, I took that bus many, many times to get downtown or go play golf at Nibley or something like that. You know, this is nice. su- super interesting for all of our listeners. Yeah, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're all
0: yawning as we yeah, speak.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, wanted to dive in. So, you're you're a stat guy. Did you graduate in statistics, or how did you get in to statistics analysis and all of that?
2: Yeah, it's it's a math degree um, that I got from Westminster. Um, but, you know, truthfully, I was into math and stats before that. Like, uh, you know, I, I was always like the kid uh, I, when I was uh, with my you know my mom growing up would take me to all these stores and she'd be like, all right, so this sale is 20 percent off and this item is 30 percent off. And if this is nine ninety nine and this is five ninety nine, you know, how much I <laughs> how much save? You, right? And I was, I was that I was that kid who uh, she would show off numbers wise and all that. And so it's always something like I've had this kind of natural liking and then and kinda feeling towards and then um you know, as I went into high school I did more of it and then when I got to college it was kind of a natural thing to study. Um, when
0: when I was at Westminster. So when your mother asked what the amount was, you didn't turn your back and yank out your uh, iPad or anything of that.
2: <laughs> no, I, just
3: a sec, Mom. I'll be right
0: I- with you. Hang on a second here.
2: <laughs> Please, yeah, just don't, you know, don't notice this calculator I took. Yeah, and, and, yeah. yeah. that's cool. No, but she use it as like a as one of those like party tricks or whatever. She'd be like, "Hey, Andy, do this." And you
3: know,
1: <laughs> so kind of like rain, rain Man. Mom. You're a little bit of Rain Man, right? You,
2: yeah, I mean, like the the five year old version of Rain Man, right? <laughs> which is which is way less impressive, but
0: anyway. Where I was headed first was uh, I enjoy reading you a lot for obvious reasons. And uh, obviously, you've never mentioned my name in your column, but that's okay. I know, he has. He just, that's yeah. not true. I definitely have
2: that. He I has, know, it. Yeah.
0: I'm just giving you crap.
2: <laughs> <Okay>.
3: The interesting <laughs> thing about
0: reading you, I mean, uh, and I, have to, you know, I go back a long ways with Gordon, too. So the two of you fill me in very nicely, but I, you're, you're predominantly always first. And now you're writing about this damn disease, for goodness sakes. And so yeah. it just it blew me away to one day, you know, see the end of the jazz in terms of the season. And I'll talk about that in a minute, if I may, but the end result of uh, your shift to the, to the COVID was, it's, uh, it caught me way off guard because you were doing play by play with it for goodness sakes too.
2: Right. And I mean, that's, that's kind of, we were, you know, as a sports department, we were trying to figure out, Hey, how do we help the rest of the paper out when there are no sports to cover? Right?
0: Right. Um, that's a good point. And,
2: So, you know, people like Gordon, you know, wrote the, he wrote a great profile of Angela Dunn, the state epidemiologist. Yep, I read Um, that. That's kind of always been his background is is doing good storytelling, right? And for me, my background in data and stats and math uh, made kind of a natural fit for me to dive into the numbers of what's going on with this disease.
1: So when did you put the, and I digress a little bit, when did you put the love of math together with sports? And then we'll transition up back into COVID. I'm curious... Yeah, you made that connection of of math and sports.
2: So really early, actually. And I actually I can pinpoint an exact point. was ninth grade. I had a class. His name was Mr. Dolbin. (laughs) And uh, I had gotten bad grades the month before or the the term before whatever they call it at Waterford. And so uh, I was grounded from the computer. I couldn't play. I used to play like Madden NFL football on my on my computer and do all these games and whatever else. My parents grounded me because they thought I got bad grades for that reason, which is probably true. <laughs> um, but the one exception, obviously, was that I could use the computer for homework. And so I was like, okay. And I you know I love sports growing up. I love basketball. I love the Jazz growing up. Um, and so this this Mr. Goldman assigned a math project, basically a, a term long math project that was like. You need to study this for weeks on end, and whatever it is, present it to uh, you know your rest, the rest of your class at the end of the term. And so I was like, okay, I figured this out. I'm gonna do something about sports, so I can keep up with sports and be on the computer, and you know, see who's won whatever, and and you know, see who's won the jazz games, who's won the uh, who's won baseball games. And actually, what I ended up doing, mostly just because it was a bigger deal at the time was was a baseball stats project okay Uh, so that let me get into like the baseball prospectus and and nate silvers of the world and that was kind of when i realized like oh okay this is something that i'm interested in that i can like ask questions about and and really dig into and it's it's kind of a combining of two of my passions the the sports side and the
1: number side so at that point it just kind of clicked
2: yeah exactly and so at that point like I was. I wanted to get every you know book I could get my hands on. I was reading like, like I said, all the ESPN stats and info stuff, um, baseball prospectus, then basketball prospectus with John Hollinger and. Right, you I was going to
1: ask if Hollinger was kind of uh, that was kind of the peak, wasn't? I mean, the Hollinger was just on his ascent at that point, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. And you know, I'm I'm looking as we talk right now. I've got his basketball uh, prospectus books uh up here on my bookshelf and and also right next to it uh dean oliver the uh the kind of the the first guy who wrote really intelligently about basketball stats um i mean there this was really kind of has that movement uh really started was it was kind of the perfect time for me to get into it
0: did you um did you develop statistical information did you verify what you were reading how did the numbers come into play i mean did you just enjoy reading numbers and then and, and, and maybe redeveloping their existence and how they came about to totals or how did that work
2: so i remember when it, when i was in ninth grade my my project was i actually created a new baseball stat and i called it the statistic because you know you don't have any humility as a ninth as a ninth grader of course uh, and, <laughs> And I think um, it, it was it was kind of you. I basically kind of did a Larry Miller thing. I don't know if you've heard about like his softball batting average kind of thing, but he added up all these stats in, in all the different categories. So you you add up number of hits, you you add on you know doubles, triples, etc. Um, add in stolen bases, subtract caught healing, subtract whatever else, and you kind of get all one big uh, number that I, I used to then value all players in, what was it? 2003. Uh, you know, I think that's maybe 2004 was the year. So, um, and, and then, you know, I think I, I, uh, since then I haven't done a lot of like, uh, I would say the only other like original research I've done was my college thesis. Okay. Um, which was kind of using, I, I went into a field of math called machine learning and that basically is using artificial intelligence to, uh, model stuff moving forward, and I did basically which college basketball players would turn into good NBA players. Kind of the question that you know general managers and front offices face every year at at the NBA draft.
0: Right. Do you? Um, and, and I'm just I'm drawn to the statistical information. When uh, David Locke is doing his stuff, he's doing nothing but stats, and occasionally he'll give us a ball score. That's good to have happen, but on the whole, he's got all kinds of various this is and that is that he studied. Did you get in and I'm I'm not comparing you by any stretch of the imagination, I assure you, but his complexity with uh, an ability to rip off percentage points and this is, and that is, uh, you know, could it's it just quite amazing. Were yeah. you that involved with the same type of uh, attitude?
2: I would say so. Yeah. Uh, and, and honestly, I think, uh, I it's been a couple of months now since this season ended. And so I can't, you know, I, I would, I would be able to guess someone's point per game or, uh, you know, percentages. And, and just because I've, I've looked at the basketball reference page enough, I kind of know what's going on with the state of this team that I cover. Right. You know, I, so, um, and, and that means I can pull those stats out and use them in my articles more quickly. And it it's just kind of a, it's a, it's a nice thing. Um, you know, I, I think is. Now that it's two months out, I don't think I can do it. And as I think I get older, as I'm I'm worse at it. So um, <laughs> that's you
1: know, a, that's I funny. welcome to the club, Andy. Yeah, really. <laughs> well,
2: um, yeah, <laughs> and so that you know that David can still do that kind of stuff. You know, we text each other all the time back and forth on what's whatever. Well, that's findings. cool.
0: I My was going to ask you that. if you communicated with him. That's good. You oh you, yeah for sure. You communicated with him uh, with uh, what pi is equal to and a few other odds and ends. <laughs> <on
2: him too. laughs> exactly.
0: Right, because every math, uh,
1: you know, math major, it only communicates in pi, because that's really yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: it's pi, like pi, e, the golden ratio, all those like fun numbers. Yeah, I
1: exactly. That, right? So like, and I'm going to McDonald's, but really, what is the statistical reliability of me getting a milkshake at McDonald's minus pi? I mean, you know.
0: <laughs> one time I was listening to him talk to Booney in a pre-game show, and mm-hmm. he was discussing. Uh, it was it was back when we had Hayward, and he was discussing his three point shooting relative to the position of a defender and had it broken down into so far in front of him, closer in front of him and right on top of him. And he had percentages of three point accomplishment based on that. and i yeah. I'm going, my God, this is, I, I mean, it was momentarily interesting. And then all of a sudden I started <laughs> thinking, that's okay. If he hits it, then I get to yell about it. So, you know, I had to walk away from that one. But it was—I found that semi-fascinating that there would be a breakdown of that type, of that intensity, and that detail. That blew me away.
2: Well, and and I—it's funny because I, I guess I've got. First of all, I'm I'm using those kind of stats as, as well, and I, I think it's interesting talking to players there are a few of them who are kind of aware of that and really want to get into their own numbers and really kind of want to optimize themselves mathematically. Right. Right. But I would say the vast majority of guys, no, they're going out there and basketball. Right. Right. Uh, but from a coaching point of view, I think that kind of stuff is valuable because, you know, if, if you've got, let's say you've got two players, let's say i um, Gordon Hayward and Randy Foy, and you've got to figure out who's going to be spotting up from the side and who's going to be running pick and roll. You know, I think, the guy who's more likely to get an open shot versus maybe the guy who's able to hit a contested shot, like a, like a Gordon Hayward type, you know, depends. It You may change your offense to put the best guys in the base, the best spots, right? Like that's a, that's a big part of coaching. So, um, you know, I think it, I, I remember when I was, I don't know, this was probably 2008, 2009. My first sports writing job was, or not job, but, gig i guess was with uh jazz bots which was this thing that the utah jazz decided to host a bunch of articles on their site and they they gave us a tour through jerry sloan's office (laughs) (laughs) And, and as much as i shouldn't have done this and i'm sure i wasn't allowed to i started like there there was a scouting report for the next game of uh of whoever they were playing i think it was the spurs just all these stats that i i never would have figured someone like jerry had access to, but nevertheless, his scouting department was making him for him. So it was kind of at that point that I realized, Oh, okay. Like even Jerry's not the most new school guy, but uh, even someone like Jerry is really kind of digging into the numbers or at least someone is giving him the numbers because uh, you know, he thinks he'll care.
0: (laughs) If uh, I heard a a very funny story one time and it wasn't too far back, bless his heart. uh, He was, you know, still a little bit more part of the world than he has unfortunately become now, but Stockton brought him a halftime thing, and he looked at it and wadded it up and said, get that piece of (laughs) S-H-I-T out of my face. He could care less at that time about them, and I'm wondering if, in fact, that was a a similar attitude back then, because all he cared about was who played the best and who scored, and I'm not sure that the you you get what I'm saying, I'm not sure the percentages of or a positioning guarding a guy shooting a three-point shot, right. he gave a damn about that. So,
2: yeah, I, I don't think you know, and and I shouldn't say the stats I saw were of that caliber, but you know, it was push, you know, uh, push Manu to his right kind of stats, which is is obvious. You know, we can we can watch the games and know you shouldn't put Manu Ginobili on his left hand. He's he's too good at it, right? Yeah, but, right.
0: That makes sense. Um,
2: but I, I wonder if, yeah, maybe one of the other coaches on the staff was looking at it, or I, I really don't know. But I was I was surprised to see that level of detail in his report.
1: So when you have, as you've uh, um, assented in your career, Andy, is there has there been a moment where the humanity of the game has hit you in the face versus the statistical probability of the game?
2: For sure. Um, and I will say, like, my first year on the beat was the last Ty Corbin year. Uh and I just asked him so many awful stat questions, guys. Like I, <laughs> I I I I ticked him off so bad. I mean I I would uh first of all, it was a bad team, but I kept pointing it out, right? So right,
3: yeah.
2: I, I kept you know, hey, you guys are thirtieth in the league defensively. Um what is it or you're thirtieth in field goal percentage, you know, in the second half? And he's like, Well, you know, you're also last in a whole lot of things when you're when you're last in the league. So I kept pointing these things out and and I think Ty got more and more annoyed, which is fair. Like I was a, I was uh, probably, I think I was 22, 23 at the time. And I was just, you know, nerdily asking him these questions (laughs) about why his team was, was bad. (laughs) So eventually, you know, it got to the point in February where he just answered all my questions with kind of one word things. And Jonathan Reinhardt, who was PR director at the time kind of took me aside and was like, Hey, you know, maybe you should try kind of change the, the tone of questions and that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think I, I learned from that experience, right. That like, I, you know, that, that these are as much as I looked at the game from that way. And, and I, you know, I obviously as a fan and capable of looking at it and getting excited about plays and all the human aspects and all that. Sure. But I was, I was asking these guys questions in a way that they didn't relate to. And that didn't allow them to answer in uh any sort of intel, you know, not intelligent, but interesting way even. So I think kind of figuring that out in the first couple of years of covering this team, uh, was, was a process for me.
0: Well, and, and, and bless your heart. That's a good thing to be. And that's where you started, but that's where you've evolved away from it. But I mean, you know, Jerry would have said, because we don't shoot well, we're not very good. Right. We do this, <laughs> we do that. And that's why we're 30th in what we're doing next, you know, and then on, on you go, but, so all you were doing basically was giving them a great opportunity to 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 define it, but the mere fact that you already knew statistically where they were answered the question for them basically.
2: Exactly, and you know I think that's kind of what I I imagined when I was a fan that it would be that I think the journalism or the being a reporter of the team would be more confrontational than it is, and and the truth is you just have to develop relationships with these guys um in order to get any information at all that you can then help the the fans with you know and and share with them right if it did not do me any good to go to Ty and say hey you're 30th and this how do you fix it you know
1: sure like i'm sure he was quite aware of that as as well i mean at least the the difficulties the team was having
2: yeah, absolutely. Obviously. Right. <laughs> so, right. I mean, yeah, it's pointing just it right out it, to him doesn't doesn't make him feel any better, or isn't making him more likely to, to give me what I want.
1: Right. And I think there's an eagerness when you're younger, to, it, It's like you feel like it's helping in some way, you know, that uh, I'm right. pointing something out or I'm doing something that should you should be grateful for this information and take it and use it somehow to magically make the players better. But that's, you know, the, the definite human element of the game. You just, it's not that easy.
0: Either that or invite him to a TJ Maxx and see if you could come up with the cost of his sweaters and <laughs> yeah. stuff. You know? So
1: has it cool. been, have you found it? Uh, does Quinn speak your language and the staff of, of the current jazz team speak your, the statistical language a little bit more, or how, how has that been in dealing with uh, Quinn and his staff?
2: Yeah, for sure. No, that that they definitely are, and and it's funny. I that was one of the first questions I asked Quinn when kind of brought on when he was brought on board is, you know, do you use these analytical tools? And um, you know, he he actually expressed that he was not all that familiar with it, but he said it was one, something that he wanted to learn and get better at. And I think that is something that he's embraced by bringing on guys like Stephen Schwartz and Zach Guthrie, guys who really do look at the numbers. Um, and and kind of he, he wants to attack the problem from all angles, which I give Quinn a lot of credit for. And so I think he's, he's gotten a lot better at that. And then I, I also say that he's over the course of covering him for whatever it's been five or six years now. Um, you know, we've, we've just, you know, developed more of a relationship. So I feel like I can't text Quinn if I need to, or can pull him aside after a press conference to ask him a specific question. And, and, th- and that way I, I'm not embarrassing him. Like, I think, I think Ty felt like I was trying to embarrass him and, and, you know, I, I wasn't, but um, it certainly wasn't a, a productive relationship. Whereas I feel like Quinn and I do have a, a much better level of communication.
1: So one of the things Andy that I, I, I've i watched basketball my whole life as well, I've never uh, dove or dived. <laughs> I always forget the proper tense of that into the stats like that, um, that immerse myself, but I, one thing I've seen as far as teams and NBA players, they it seems like that statistics don't um, well, appreciate history as much in some respects as far as talent or the way NBA players look at the talent that they've either known or played with. And the point of my question, one thing I would love to see statistically if it could be measured out, you know, I, I theorize that the Houston Rockets teams with Olajuwon Um, you know, and Kenny Smith, um, I think Drexler was on that team, you know, when they played the inside outside game, to me, it it was a lot more like current basketball than people maybe give it credit for just because Olajuwon was so dominant on the post. And I think that there's maybe, you know, that there's such a a prevalence of talking about good shots and bad shots and how the 10-footer is bad, you know, where, you know, uh, Vinny Johnson made a living at it. And you try to assimilate all that as a fan. Have you ever gone back and looked at things historically and tried to put it in context of the time uh, versus the statistic and comparing it to modern times
2: yeah i mean um i would say i haven't but i know of a lot of good writers who have um and i i I think they they've done great work and and talked about it mike prada who actually just got furloughed from uh, sb nation has done uh, some really good stuff on for example, how that uh, mid '90s Sonics defense was actually kind of ahead of its time in terms of its trapping mm-hmm. and in terms of its uh, aggressiveness on that end. So, Very much so. Um, you know, I, I think you. There are a bunch of these writers. Um, oh, Kevin Pelton has done this too, quite frankly, of, of kind of comparing different eras of teams. Um, I think it, it's it's such a interesting question because I think there is. Uh, I, I don't know. It's there's. I think this today's game gets attacked for having a lack of diversity in how teams play. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that's fair. You know, I think the I, jazz play in a very different way than the Houston Rockets do, who play in a very different way than the LA Lakers do. Right. Right. Um, and I, I think if you, you look at even the best teams, that's, that's the case. Um, as far as comparing it, I haven't done any work. No, but I, I do think that there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Um, i trying to think also who, there's there's one other obvious one i'm forgetting oh the other thing i'd say is like comparing the strength of eras i think is also really challenging you know like how do you say you know I, there's we want to say that do we want to say that 2020 basketball is better than 2000 basketball or 1980 basketball or 1960 basketball and how do we define that and you know right. i think Chamberlain for example gets a ton of you know crap for playing against a whole bunch of short white guys which is actually absolutely true
1: right Yeah, exactly (laughs) as far as his dominance over those people but it doesn't and and one of the things the common thread to me is skill and you know when you go back the, the thing when like and I think you make a great point Andy when you talk about people hitting on today's game for a lack of diversity I think offensively there's a ton of diversity to me, as I look back and as of the basketball that I've watched over the years, there isn't a lot of diversity in defense. And I think a lot of that has been taken away from the players because of the rules of the game. And so, you know, how do you statistically account for that when in the 90s defense was absolutely played and called much differently, let alone, you know, take the legal defense out of it, although it's a huge part but how do you or maybe even leave it in? How do you statistically account for that? Because that forced offensive players to be different. And it's, you know, and, and I would have to think defensive efficiency, if you could monitor that was would be completely different then than it is now.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're you're totally right. And it and it is, you know, you can't obviously do a, a points per possession kind of thing. It's um, it, that being said, it's hard to kind of pinpoint what happened we just see that there are these kind of offensive leaps when rules were changed right you know and uh that happens with the three-point line I and mean, those those two seasons where they, the three-point line in a couple feet or whatever it was uh you know we saw a spike in three-point percentage ryan right? russell's two favorite years yeah. yeah right exactly <laughs> <laughs> And it it makes a lot of sense that you'd see that with, with hand checking or, you know, the uh, legal defense rules or, you know, whatever else that is that that's changed. Um, You know, obviously just how they call the game is very different than it was 10 years ago. I think, you know, the, the one that always gets stuck in my head is as, you know, kind of a guy with more knowledge of the modern game is I don't know if Dwayne Wade wins that 06 uh, title. If, you know, the game is called the way it is because he, you know, he really did win that title on the basis of getting to the line 15 to 20 times a game. Absolutely. Um, you know, as, as we call that, but on the other hand now James Harden's mode of drawing free throws is in vogue and very effective. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know exactly. Um, it, it is just really hard to compare these things statistically. I think you can kind of get at, uh, different, areas of of trying to figure it out but I'd also say that the data wasn't as good back then as as, as it is now you know I might want to ask you know if I'm trying to look at the Dwayne Wade question I might want to ask okay how many times did he get fouled on his drives to the basket well now we have the tracking data to count the number of times he drove and we can figure out the exact percentage of the number of times he fouled he was he was fouled on those drives in 2006 we didn't have the tracking data right and of course not even even before then we had way, way less stuff. You know, we, we didn't start tracking steals and blocks until the mid-1970s. So, you know, I, I think it's uh, it, it's one of the things that we do our best at, but there are just going to be questions that we can't answer statistically. And, you know, I think I'm fine with that.
0: Does that need to be established? I mean, it, it's it's still a game, and the best team wins I'm and I and I'm not not belittling what you just stated because it's it's part of development here. I mean, look at the league; they've added cameras now. They've got a 360-degree camera that sits right in front of me every now and then, so they can see all the way around the court. And then they've added cameras for you know for cakas when they get to a a a ruling. They've taken the ruling some of it out of the hands of the uh, on-court officials, but. The game is developing this way because of the intelligence of electronics. I guess when way back in the back, we when uh, D- Dr. Naismith put up the peach basket, you threw the damn thing through the <laughs> peach basket. Right. And nobody, you know, you the more the more that went in wins, you know. So, and and again, I'm not belittling the statistical information because it's pretty interesting when you break it down into. You know who did this and who did that and how did they do it? It's kind of cool, I guess. But um, I guess I mean, I'm just I I'm trying to get a bottom line of where the value goes. Is that I mean, yeah. it's a guy like Quinn whose intelligence is far surpassing every any average coach in the NBA. This he's going to pay attention to it. Who else does, as far as you're concerned?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. You know, I think there there are obviously people like me, and I think there's a growing group of fans that pay attention to it. Um, you know, that camera you mentioned at mid-court, that 360-degree camera, is going to be really useful when we can't have uh, fans in the arenas and all of a sudden people are watching this on VR, right, the virtual reality. So, But I, I think that basically we have to be really cognizant of when we're using technology and statistics to improve the game for the game's sake and when we're just doing whatever's most possible with technology, right? So, you know, I, I think we should be using the the tech to advance you know to make the game quicker so you know i have no problem with a, a Sakakis kind of stepping in and making a uh either a out of bounds call or a loose ball foul call or a uh clear path foul more quickly right like yeah that's that's no fun for anybody when when the refs are watching the video for a minute and a half at, at the scorers table um but I I do think that it's fair to ask, okay, should we review clear path files at all? Or should we just say, hey, let's get on with it. Or let's find a way that we don't have to rely on technology and, and watch the replay over and over again. Um, and so, I, I you know, I, I basically, I, I, I want what everyone else wants, which is to make the game as, as good as possible. And I think sometimes tech can help that. And I think we can do more to... Uh, with technology to kind of prevent that again i think the james harden stuff is a little bit unwatchable at times and i wish there were ways we could uh you know take that out of the game maybe make it so referees weren't so tricked uh or tricked as easily but um at some level dan you're right like the, the the quality of the game just has to be what it is and what it has been for the last 60 years and um you know i i think we can get away with that sometimes when we you know, rely too much on, on the, the stats and tech.
0: The unfortunate end result of the creation of the statistical data creates an urge in, in the players. Really, I have that type of percentage if I do this and I do that. I mean, I, I wouldn't give Harden too much. Um, I mean, I would give him credit for maybe, you know, overcoming and seeing what he can do and experimenting with how to get percentages higher than what he normally does, and that's a byproduct to me again of the fact it was developed and officials are watching. And then, I mean, you get a Dwayne Wade who who gets a statistical data about how many times he gets fouled on the way up to the hoop. Let me keep doing. I mean, I go. <laughs> I remember when Ostertag used to come in every uh, before the start of the second half and ask me for stats just so we could see what rebounds he got. I mean, he could count that high. <laughs> And Sloan got upset with him one time he said he he said, tell Roberts the next time he gives him a piece of paper, i'm gonna he's gonna hear about it, And that was the last time <laughs> that happened. It was pretty funny, but the statistical stuff makes the players' egos uh, go up with the stats as far as I can see. yeah, and
2: I, I think we have to. What I think is really interesting then is creating better stats that reflect team first kind of play, right? Like mm, yeah. you know, when they put plus minus on the box score, I love that because now all of a sudden you can't go out there and dare Coleman it, right? You can't right. go out there and just <laughs> get yours, get your points and, and at the expense of your team. you got to go out there and if, if you've got 20 points, but you're a minus 30 on the night, people are going to notice and you've got to play defense, and you've got to be part of your team. People will notice what leads to winning games. And so I think the closer and more we can get statistics that lead towards what we want to see in basketball, uh, the better. And I I do think that we're making a lot of progress on those kind of things to figure out, okay, this is actually what matters for winning and what matters for losing versus let's just count up the number of points and rebounds we have so Greg Ostertag feels good about (laughs) the (laughs) run. So with some stats
1: in in you know, I, I I like stats, and some of them I feel like are, are useless in some ways. And I know that you know when you're an NBA coach, that can that, that obviously is different. I want to get your opinion on some of the stats that you feel like are good, some of that aren't, and maybe trail in that direction a little bit. So, like for example, I I above the break threes. I I for whatever reason, it just makes me nauseated to hear that all the time because it's. I understand that players, you know, and I, I play basketball and I, I get that I have better spots in the floor where I, you know, I, I feel more comfortable. And, but that's the point. I feel more comfortable about it. I'm not looking at is it above the break or below the break or, you know, and right. it, I might feel more comfortable in the corner, as Hot Rod used to call it, the coffin corner, you know. And, but it, it, there is a feel as much of a, as a stat. Are there – can you go through some of the stats you feel like are good that do advance the game and others that maybe – you know, there are, are, might be good information, but it's really, you know, that is there a reason to convey it to fans as much as it's conveyed?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. You know, with the above breaks three thing, I would say, you know, I think I would prefer to look at it as uh, rather than a, a specific, you know, above the break or below the break or, you know, in the corner or whatever. I won't look at specific hot spots, right? You know, so. Absolutely. Memo had his one spot on the wing from the left side that the Jazz would set plays up for him to hit because they knew he was a 45% three point shooter from that spot. Like, that was his spot. He, he told the coaching staff this, and it was reflected in the stats. And,
1: and he felt comfortable there. That's exactly my yeah. point. I mean, and that's a spot. It doesn't matter if it's above the break or below it, it's just a spot. And it, to me, players have their spots versus trying to get them to conceive of what is above and below the break. I think that kind of confuses them.
2: Yeah, I I think that's fair. You know, I'd say, you know, below the break is the corner. So, you know, left corner, right corner, you know, you've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. Um, But I, you know, it's the, the bummer part about that though, is, as I, as I think about your question um, then you just have sample size issues, quite frankly, like, the truth is, even someone like Memo, who shot from that spot, you know, a, a, however many times, probably a hundred more, hundred or more times per season, you don't have a really good idea between whether he shot forty or forty-five percent there, just because, uh, you know, maybe you learn those things in practice when guys have the opportunity to take a thousand shots in an afternoon. But um, that's kind of what I I would be curious mm. to see is that level of detail for each of the players. But um, as far as other stats that I I, I do think matter. Um, you know, I, I, think, uh, they're the, I really actually do like on court, off court stats and, and, um, as an individual or, or as
1: a team or both
2: less like an individual plus minus game and, uh, per game kind of thing and more as a team concept. So okay. which lineups are working, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, which players are, are making more of their fair share of of contributing to winning or getting larger leads than, than their, you know, than their counterparts. Um, you know, and I I do think that some of our, our really good, you know, advanced plus minus stats reflect reality on that case where, you know, you guys like a a Trey Burke who had decent counting stats, um, in the early part of his career, but couldn't really lead to wins because of, you know, the defense and whatever, whatever, other issues, you see that reflected in those plus minus stats. Um, and so I think kind of those, those um, kind of the advanced plus minus stats I, I enjoy. Um, I've really started to enjoy uh, the, the kind of play type breakdowns, if you will. And this is kind of where we get into some of the stuff, Ken, you were talking about, but, or heck, you were too, but. Um, where you get into, you know, if, if you make Manu Ginobili drive right versus drive left and what that looks like. And if he, uh, how does, Oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. How does Gordon Hayward or how does Donovan Mitchell operate in the pick and roll when he goes right versus when he rejects the screen and goes left. And I, I actually do enjoy digging into the game in that way, even though it's, it's crazy, the level of detail there is, but it does allow you to see what's working and what's not. And if, you know, if you're in a late game situation and you need one basket, what are, what's the smart play to do here? um, I I think is, is kind of revealing, Um, you know, how, again, I I really kind of like looking at the game from a coach's point of view. So again, how do you use Bojan Bogdanovic? Do you, he's pretty good at posting up, but do you have him stand in the corner instead? Um,
1: Well, and then, and to that, like he has a propensity to throw the ball away in pressure situations. He gets caught very much. And I think that that would be useful to understand you know it's uh, and i think he would appreciate that but being put you know when you're in this situation you've got to understand you know they always talk about understanding clock and time you know time and game situations and i think that that's really appropriate with a lot of players
2: yeah and I, I'll, I'll say this like i think overarching like what i want is i i want to rather than look at okay here's what a what the, what stat should I look at to get some information? I want to have a question about the game, and then use data to answer it. So rather than saying, "Oh, if I look at the uh, wins produced for these guys, and it really shows me that, yep, you know what, LeBron James is better than Giannis Antetokounmpo," that doesn't really do anything for me. I right. want to answer questions <laughs> about the game that I have on the floor. So, uh, you know, it, whether that's as a coach or as a fan, you know, should uh, I don't know should Randy Foy be
1: in the game over Marvin Williams? I don't know. Why I keep using it. <laughs> 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 Marvelous Early 2010s jazz. Yeah, year, that, but... that, 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 you're getting old school on this. <laughs> That's
0: awesome. Hey, uh, uh, does is the, the content and the detailed numerical data, is that part of scouting? Are, are scouts able to come up with that, or do the team share that all that stuff? I mean, is, do, they, do they play fair and say, here's what happens when this happens? Or, I mean, it, I mean, is that divulged or is that just kept internally?
2: Yeah, I would say there's a, there's a whole bunch of data that the NBA uh, gathers and pays for, uh, whether that's synergy, whether that's the cameras up in the top of, of every arena that actually tracks, you know, 30 frames per second where everybody is on the court. There's a lot of uh, stuff that's available to everybody. And then there's a lot of proprietary stuff that each of the teams has developed for themselves uh, and that to try to get a competitive advantage. You know, I remember a few years ago, I'd say probably five years ago, the Raptors created this program, which actually sought to try to use the tracking data to decide where their defenders should be on every individual second of every individual possession. Uh-huh. So you could say like, hey, Kyle Lowry, you know, I know that you're you're helping off here into the paint but you should be one step further left. So that way, if he drives, you can be ready to kick and show, you know, or whatever it is. Right. Uh, And, you know, I think it's that kind of stuff that you can really get a competitive advantage on as well as, you know, what happens in practice, you know, again, like we talked about with memo, if memo's shooting 45% from one spot on the floor in practice, well, maybe that'll transfer into a game and, you know, that way you have data that uh, the other teams don't know about.
1: So, Let's transition. So, taking all of that information, and let's go back to what we talked about at the beginning. How you are now covering COVID, and you know we're going and and you know obviously the Jazz were in the middle of the of COVID. You could say that they were really at the at the forefront of the public (laughs) knowledge of (laughs) of of the whole thing. Initiated it, and um,
2: yeah. As someone who's in Oklahoma City, I can tell you that's what it felt like. Yes,
1: (laughs) and we and we had uh, Bowler Jack on. Uh, a couple oh, of weeks good, ago, and he he talked about that whole thing. It was surreal to hear about it. But uh, so talk about a- applying the statistics. Now you're going from, in my opinion, a sport that is, even though we want to take stats and make it as exact as possible, it's still, you know, you still have so much of the human element and, you know, mopiness or a good attitude or all the things that can change that. And you're going into something that is, traditionally data-driven it's a disease and it, talk about the difference in tracking those numbers and how it affects how you approach what you write and what you convey to the public
2: it's funny it's funny that you put it that way because i might put it the other way where there are really good basketball stats you know like we know exactly how many points per game each player has had since 1955 or whatever you know
3: okay. like yeah. in
2: sure. every single game right like we we actually know a lot and and for the coronavirus we legitimately did not know the thing existed 6 months ago
1: okay let me uh, let me change the question a little bit so talk about predictability maybe throw predictability in there because um in i know that still we're tracking all the stats but it it can it be, can it transition the predictability of what a person's going to score to what the disease is going to do
2: yeah um it's <laughs> it's difficult right like that's right. not the same skill set no
0: completely uh, <laughs> that's not a post-game discussion right basically. And
2: it's not yeah uh you know i i'd say this like once i learned i would i was kind of getting this assignment and i was i was excited about it you know it was honestly something to do after two and a half weeks three weeks of, of quarantining and kind of being you know bored out of my mind uh and then <laughs> having so I really kind of dug into the research, and I dug into the the patterns, I dug into the numbers, and I dug into infectious diseases and how they, they work. Um, and I would say that basically I've had to use a lot of my uh, schooling and training more than maybe my basketball experience. Okay. Um, I It's been... I have to, you know, like I'm looking at scientific papers and and the the ongoing research where there are you know literally dozens of new studies coming out every day about this thing and really trying to figure out what it all means. I, I think like my skill set of being able to find um find out information and compile it and report it to readers has been the most useful thing. And kind of take something that looks like gobbledygook at at first glance and turn it into something that people understand that's the skill to me that uh that i can use in both ways um so it's it's been challenging at times it's been really super interesting Uh, it's been obviously this is a tragic thing that's happening to our communities and, and tens of thousands of people are dying but um it's it's one of those things that i'm it would be weird for me to be working on anything else while this is going on
0: interesting um when Rudy got busted in Oklahoma, we talked to Boulder Jack about this, and he described it emotionally as something that was above and beyond anything he'd ever experienced. Did you uh, did you go through that as well when you were having the uh, nasal thing shoved uh, up your nose, basically, <laughs> and down your throat?
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was that wasn't the emotional part for me. That was. Uh, at that point I was tired and <laughs> I had been sitting, you know, for a couple hours, honestly, I sat at center court on the OKC Thunder logo and just wrote my article and talked to CNN and got calls from friends and family worried that I was okay. And, you know, I had to you know, try to figure out what life would be, how I was getting home, all those kind of things. Um, it was, it was, I, I kind of, I, Panicked. I mean, I, I think I had a panic attack, but it was a, there was all of a sudden a lot of pressure to be kind of in the middle of the world like that. Um, the, sure. the test itself is, I mean, it, it's weird for a few seconds. It's honestly like the the spiciest cocktail sauce I've ever had and it, how it like clears your sinuses. Almost. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I, I would say, hey, if you, people out there should get tests. Um, it's, it's really, it does feel like they're picking your brain a little bit, but it's still, it, you'll be fine in like two or three minutes afterwards.
0: Oh yeah. I totally agree. But, like I was telling Bowler when, and what happened when Rudy got, uh, got diagnosed, the thing that it crossed my mind the next day after I got rid of, you know, of all of the, uh, my goodness, look what happened to us, et cetera, et cetera, was the fact that we on the table had fist bumped him and Donovan Hit their entire careers. And then Rudy, bless his heart, just prior to tip off, would put his hands flat down on the table in front of me and stretch out and get himself mentally prepared for tip. And my halftime potty break, I would always jump out on the table, put my hands where his hands were, and, you know, come back. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, I start reading stuff and hearing stuff about the, you know, the, the, contracting the uh, the virus through so many different ways yeah i got tested three days later and had to um i had to get upset with my way into saint mark's because they said what are you doing here and i said well you know i had to describe who i was and what happened immediately i was allowed in had to come in the back door because they didn't want me infecting anybody but i got okay. uh, Four it days really, later it was I was really
1: to keep him from his autograph secrets. yeah
0: that's he, true I, he, hey I'm Dan Robert and <laughs> they, they said we don't give a damn who you are so anyway the uh, end result of the test was uh negative and it was an, an amazing relief but just uh, just an amazing set of scenario that you know we and then, and then I was not uh, for a moment surprised that Donovan got it because their locker mates uh, and they're you know and yeah. you you've seen them both too. and even when they come out of a timeout, they're arm in arm, they got they're talking about you know, what are we going to do now some some moves here, some moves there. it was it was you know, it was bound to happen just simply because of the proximity they both shared. They were sure as heck not six feet apart whenever they got on court. so it well, was uh, I'm,
2: I'm, go ahead.
0: ahead. I'm sorry. go ahead
2: i'm I'm constantly blown away at that it was only Donovan
0: um, absolutely. yeah.
2: You know, because, you know, Donovan's got a, a locker partner on his on his right-hand side, too. You know, it, it, and so, and, and obviously they're sharing these planes going back and forth. They were just on a week-long road trip. Um, you know, I'm sure they're hanging out in each other's hotel rooms and playing video games and, and going out on the town and whatever else. Like, there are just so many instances where these guys could have spread this disease to each other and couldn't. and And, and it was really only... Rudy and Donovan. And, you know, we don't know what order that happened in or, or whatever else happened, but that it was only two out of the 58 after all the high fives. And, you know, after every free throw, you're high fiving every player on your team, right? <laughs> like, exactly. It's, 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 you know, I think you have that story. And I have obviously, I talked to Rudy, um, you know, uh, multiple times on the Monday before the game, I talked to Donovan multiple times in Oklahoma city, like, And we kind of all have these stories and it's just weird, you know, like I'll I'll give you this example. Like right now you look at the studies that have looked at household transmission, when someone has positive case and goes home and, you know, hangs out with their family, that's only transfers to someone in their family, 15 to 30% of the time, which is pretty low. You would think that if you were spending multiple days and nights with these people um, that you'd get it. But then you have like the, the Washington choir singer where, one asymptomatic case walked in and 45 out of the 60 people at that choir practice got the disease. Or wow. the, the woman at the restaurant who uh, gave it to people, you know, more than even six feet away at, at an adjacent table um, just by being there 45 minutes. Or, you know, a, the bus ride to a, a temple in, in Shanghai that 45 people on this 60, or I think, no, I'm, I'm confusing my numbers here. I think it was 27 out of 42 people on this bus uh, ended up getting it and it's just weird that there are these there are these super spreader events where hundreds of people get it or tens and, and dozens of people get it from one person in one instance and of all the time that the jazz shared that donovan and rudy and and everyone else on that team plane shared with each other and that only those two got it it's it's a it's almost a freakish phenomenon
0: no you take that with the Monday night game with Toronto, Rudy, and again, I never remember who the, he was uh, He was uh, defending against in, in the Toronto Center, but they were all over each other from one end of the court to the other throughout the entire game, and not one person in Toronto was in, affected, not one right. in their test. And I'm going, how in God's name does that happen when Rudy and Donna, I mean, it's and and you're c- continuing the bizarre aspects of this disease and its effect on people relative to certain, you know, certain situations. It's so, very strange. So, Andy, would yeah, we, you oh, go ahead, Andy? I'm sorry.
2: We, it's just weird how we we don't understand it yet. You know, like the one in the news this week was in South Korea. You know, they really did a great job of eliminating this thing and they were down to just one or two cases a day. And then one of their cases, a 29-year-old male, they actually opened up all their bars and clubs and whatever else, uh, went hopping in in one of their cities. And all of a sudden, now they have 2,000 potential contacts, and 79 people have gotten it from this one case. And it's just, it's weirdly overwhelming that it, for whatever reason, there are these super spreaders, and then there are these kind of no spreaders, and it, it, it seems like you know, as, as much as Rudy started this, I don't want to say Rudy started this. We don't know if Rudy had, it no,
1: no yeah. we don't knows. know if someone get, you know, who, where he got it from, if it was from Boston or, you know, whatever. I mean, right. it, it's impossible to know,
2: but yeah. And, and I guess that's the thing is it, as, as many people did get this, that we know about it really still could have been so much worse.
1: It, it absolutely. So when you talk about super spreaders or, you know, the, the, then the people that don't spread it that way, and you talk about these statistics. They're basically st- statistical anomalies, correct?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and we don't know what makes one more likely to be than the other. You know, there was kind of a hypothesis at first that it was the people who got who were most uh, symptomatic were kind of uh, being these super spreaders. You know, if someone was was coughing a lot or someone who was later going to have really significant trouble with the disease but you know all of a sudden you've got this 29 year old who seems to be mostly healthy now from from what i understand and still give it to all these people so it's it's just a it's a it's something we just don't understand because again it's it's so new that we just haven't had the science and the, the time to keep up on it
1: so another thing that you mentioned that i found interesting you talk about the the one person you said potentially could have infected 2000 or contacted 2000 people correct Yeah. So have you done any deep dives into the number of people that the, the exponent factor of one person in, in the number of people that they can contact and how that differs per region or per socioeconomic class, or, you know, have you, have you um, dived into that at all?
2: Yeah. And that's something that I I have looked at and it's hard to, it's hard to say. So because the problem is it's not just the number of people you can come into contact with, but how long you come into contact with them and, and those kind of things. Right. So, um, you know, I, I, think it's fair to say that, and we've seen this in the data so far that more densely populated areas, um, have a bigger effective contagion rate. So New York city is the perfect example where you have people packed into these subways and it's, it's obviously very clear, uh, that Subways had some part of to do with it, but also there's just a lot of density in in New York City and and apartment buildings and whatever else. And so people who live in these areas are going to get the disease more read more maybe not more readily, but you know they're certainly going to have a higher number of contacts on a day to day basis. But you also look at how it affects these kind of rural communities. Um, You know, I'm thinking the Navajo Nation in San Juan County, that's had a a huge uh, case density with this. and even, you know, kind of these middle-sized cities like New Orleans and Detroit, uh, kind of cities that have similar populations to us in Salt Lake City, and they've had significant problems with it as well, you know, with, with hundreds or or thousands of people dying. So, um, it's, I I think it's one of those things that we don't, again, quite understand that obviously the number of, the number of contacts you have helps, but, these rural communities where you're seeing people over and over again, and you know, maybe there's only one post office or one grocery store. All of a sudden, if you know the one grocery store is contaminated, a lot of people in that community get it.
1: Right. So have you worked at all? Have you got to interview Dr. Dunn at all?
2: Uh, the only time I actually have talked to Dr. Dunn was when I was on the team plane and we landed in Salt Lake and she gave, she to us then. Um, <laughs> so that's, My experience with Dr. Dunn is the Jazz's experience with Dr. Dunn on March 12th.
1: Is her position, do they understand and do they dive into statistics the same way that you do? Is that part of their job? Okay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I would say to a significantly higher degree, you know, um, they have line by line each of these, you know, there are over 6,000 cases in Utah right now. They have line by line uh, their best guesses as to who they talk to, how many contacts they have. Um, where those numbers are are better and or worse and really they can what that allows them to do is distribute resources to those uh, either heavily hit areas or areas that are about to be heavily hit so you you know don't see outbreaks in those cases
1: do you think that this experience that you've had with reporting on covid will make you better in your coverage and analysis of the nba and the jazz and if so how
2: that's a good question. Um, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, you'd like to say so. And I, I think sure. I, I feel, I, I feel more honestly, because the, the articles have gotten such a good reaction and, and I feel, I, I feel like I've, I'm more confident in what I do and kind of what I can bring to no matter what I write about. Um, but I do think that, you know, as I, I, Am comfortable reading scientific studies, and that doesn't really help when it comes to basketball. You know, <laughs> so I, I guess I would say not. A ton, but I I do think that it's is this is a time in my career I'll never forget. That's for
0: sure. Basketball is more definitive than what you're dealing with with this disease, and you just relayed a whole bunch of statistical information relative to who gets it, who who has not got it, blah blah blah. But basketball, you at least you know who scored the basket and who got the foul, and that's uh, it seems. <laughs> well, to people be... could
1: argue who got the foul. Part. <laughs> that's what, mean, I, you know. <laughs> I know. I knew you'd say that. I knew you'd
0: say that. But it's yeah. It, but
2: there. It, I mean. There are wins and losses at the end of the day, and it's and it only seems like there are losses either way with this thing,
0: right? Yeah, I get that. That's precisely my point. That's where I was headed exactly well
1: A- Andy, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on uh that we could continue this forever. I don't want to let you get to, you know, dinner if it's quarantine raviolios <laughs> or, you know, whatever. That's, I might go get Nally's chili right now. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I, we'd love to have you back sometime, too. This is uh, we and hopefully talking basketball and just doing a deep nerd dive into in the uh, the analytics study pro or con.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll be back on anytime. Just hit me up and. Quick, before I go, I, I do want to say like thank you to Dan for you know I've been watching jazz games and attending jazz games for my entire life, and you really are the guy who uh, spans eras. I don't want to make you feel old here, so I feel bad about.
0: <laughs> it. I already am, and thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're 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 really kind. Of, you're very very heads up, and you are now nominated as my favorite nerd. I guarantee. <laughs> you you
2: know you've you've made a huge difference in in the experience the whole time and i i really appreciate it
0: oh that's so kind of you to say that man i appreciate it really
1: cool andy well thanks so much we really appreciate it it's been awesome and uh take care of yourself we look forward to having you on again all right we'll
0: do you guys too all right take care bye-bye andy bye-bye